This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. If you're familiar with the Gospels, and many of us are, then you'll be well aware of the fact that the, the accounts contain not only the teaching of Jesus, but also a lot about people and the response, particularly, of people to the teaching of Jesus and the message which he brought. So, having looked at the Gospel of Matthew and having looked at all the people who were mentioned there, I was rather spoiled for choice as to who to talk about this afternoon. There were people whose lives were changed by meeting Jesus. So, for example, Zacchaeus, whose curiosity in wanting to know more about Jesus and what he was saying climbed the tree and Jesus saw him there and called him down and his life was changed as a result. Bartimaeus, for example, he was a blind man, but having heard of the work which Jesus could do in curing people and enabling them to see again, he knew that Jesus was coming his way and he called out and Jesus healed him. Imagine the change that that made to Bartimaeus' life. And there was Jairus. Jairus, whose daughter was brought back to life. What an amazing day that must have been for Jairus and how Jesus changed his life in what he did for him. So there are lots of people there. Actually, a couple of those weren't mentioned in, in, in Matthew's Gospel, but I'm demonstrating or trying to demonstrate the fact that sometimes people, the, the people that Jesus met, he changed their lives. But there were also people who Jesus met in the Gospel accounts who were rather less happy about the teaching of Jesus and the things which he said because Jesus challenged their position and the authority which they'd come to hold in Jewish society. Well, I'm thinking there, of course, about the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They felt threatened by the things that Jesus said because he was revealing to the people, he was warning the people that the motivation of those men was wrong. And he demonstrated how they'd misunderstood what God expected of them. Well, that would make an interesting study as well, looking at those men and, and their response to, to, to Jesus. But I tried to find something this afternoon which I thought would be helpful for us all. And so I've chosen to talk about a group of men who Jesus not only met, but as Brother Al mentioned in his introduction, um, it was a group of men who Jesus came to know very well. There is a difference, but isn't there, between meeting people and knowing people. Although, of course, Jesus had the advantage that he could look on men's hearts. He knew what was inside them. He knew what was making them tick. He knew their thinking and their understanding. And the men that we're going to, to, to think about, as we've, we've come across in our readings, were men who, after the death and then the resurrection of Jesus, would go on to preach the gospel far and wide to Jews and to Gentiles, who were those, those people who were living in the land of Palestine, and the region roundabout. So it's the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles, those who were called out to do this work, who we're going to think about this afternoon. And as we've read in Matthew chapter 10, we read there those opening words that the 12 were, were appointed. And really it's a very succinct list of names, isn't it, that we're given. But behind each of those 12 names, there is a character and there is a personality. There is an individual. 
And that's what I want to look at a little bit this afternoon. And to do that study justice, really we have to search through all the gospel records, all four of them, and, and piece together a picture. And in fact, really and truly, we, we, should, we should go further than that as well, because there are some of those apostles who themselves have writings in the New Testament. But we will limit ourselves pretty much to the gospels this afternoon. There are some of the apostles who we learn lots about. Others are hardly mentioned at all. Come with me to Matthew chapter 4. And it's back there where we read of Jesus calling some of those disciples in the early days of his ministry. Jesus at this time is in the north of the country. He's up in the region of Galilee and he's walking by the lakeside. And in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 4, we read these words. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. Incidentally, I'm reading this afternoon from the English Standard Version. So, clearly there was something about Jesus which those four men were drawn to. Because to stop what you're doing, to stop going about your daily work and respond to a man who says, follow me, is clearly something very special, isn't it? But we're told, as we've read there, that they immediately, left their nets, and they followed Jesus. Now, a more general reading of the, the Gospels suggests that these men had probably heard Jesus speaking publicly on previous occasions, and they were probably familiar with some of his teaching. But that still doesn't take away from the fact, does it, that when Jesus said, follow me, they responded in such an immediate way, and they committed themselves to supporting Jesus in the work that he was going to do. Initially then, as we've read, four disciples were called, the first of which was Simon Peter. And it was Simon Peter, who generally we refer to as Peter, who later became one of the leading disciples, and he went on to preach particularly to non-Jewish believers. But in his early days as a disciple, he had a lot to learn. Let's just think about Simon Peter for a few minutes. Now, as a fisherman, he was a skilled and hardy worker. You can imagine fishing all night, which is when apparently they went fishing, battling against the elements of the wind and the waves on that lake of Galilee, which was particularly prone to storms, in a relatively small boat. It was a challenging job and something which he'd need to be well prepared for. Perhaps he'd grown up with it, I'm sure he had. But it is a job which doesn't require an academic background as such. So Peter probably wasn't someone who was given to study or the reading of the scrolls containing the Old Testament. And certainly he wouldn't have been used to public speaking. So Peter's first challenge on responding to the call of Jesus to follow me was initially to understand and appreciate the gospel which Jesus was preaching to the people. Now the gospel itself is very simple. It's the good news of the coming kingdom of God on the earth and how we can each share in that hope. But what the disciples were to learn from Jesus was how that hope should affect their lives on a day-to-day -day basis and how they should be living their lives 
in service to God. So it wasn't just an academic understanding that they needed to acquire. They needed to show that they could live out those things which they were being taught in their lives as well. As Peter and the other disciples would be the ones who would preach the gospel to others, they needed not only to be able to understand it for themselves, but over time they'd have to learn how to explain it as well, how to speak about it clearly and how to be able to confidently explain the gospel to others and how to make a response to the arguments with which they'd be challenged. They needed to know about the Old Testament and how that prophesied the work of Jesus and how he'd bring the hope of salvation to men and women everywhere and not just the Jews. They had to understand all of those things because in time to come, they would be the men who were preaching the word of God and witnessing for the Lord Jesus, witnessing for the gospel message. So in the early days of his discipleship, Peter would have listened very carefully very intently to the words of Jesus to absorb and to understand that message. And really that's no different for us, is it? We have to come to God's word with open and inquiring minds and a desire to know more. God has revealed his plan and purpose to us through the 66 separate books of the Bible and it's a lifetime of study to understand how, how those accounts are all connected together and how they agree and how they explain God's purpose with the earth and with humankind. But Peter had to start. He had to learn more than he did when Jesus initially said to him, follow me. Now, the disciples had the Old Testament, which they were able to read and study. We've got the benefit of the whole of the, um, the scripture record put together. We have the New Testament as well, that complete account. What a privilege we've got, isn't it? And it's a privilege that we should value in being able to read all that God has revealed to us. And with such convenience as well, that it's presented to us in the compact form of the printed word of God. I'm sure that one of the things which Jesus taught his disciples was to ask God for guidance and understanding in knowing how to serve him and in understanding his plan and purpose. And again, that's something which all of us should do as we come to read the word. It's always good practice whenever we open the word to ask for God's guidance on um, our understanding of the things that we're reading. But there's a verse in the Old Testament which doubtless Jesus would have brought to the attention of the disciples. It's in Psalm 119. We needn't turn to it. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. So that was a little prayer that Jesus would have, would have taught his disciples. And that's something that we can all use as we read God's word and as we try to do his will in our lives and live in a way which is pleasing before him. Because God is willing to help us in our understanding of his word if only we ask for guidance in that aim. Now, when we look more closely at Peter's discipleship during the time of the ministry of Jesus, we see that it involved lots of ups and downs. There were times when he was the strongest and the boldest of the disciples. He was confident to speak and, and even on occasions to challenge Jesus. And there were times when that confidence also led to his downfall. Take, for example, if we turn to Matthew chapter 14, the occasion when the disciples were um, out on the Sea of Galilee during the night. And... It was a windy night, they were experiencing some, um, some turbulent weather, and Jesus comes towards the boat, walking on the water. And this is what we read, Matthew 14 and verse 25. 
And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out with fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now we might conclude from those verses that Peter was weak in faith. Having stepped from the boat, he looked around him and he saw the situation that he was in and his faith failed him and he cried out to Jesus to be saved. But I don't think it demonstrates Peter's weakness of faith at all. I think it actually demonstrates his strength of faith because it was only Peter who had the confidence to step from the boat onto the sea. Where were the other 11 disciples? Well, they all remained in the boat. Their faith wasn't even strong enough at this stage to even think about leaving the relative safety of the boat um, in which they were travelling. Now, the situation which the disciples found themselves in on that occasion, in the boats, some way, in some ways reflects our own situation in life, doesn't it? Verse 24 told us that The ship was in the midst of the sea and that it was being tossed about by the waves because of a contrary wind. And life can be like that for any one of us, can't it? What we'd call the the ups and downs of life. Challenges and difficulties, problems and worries, which we all have to deal with day by day. But because of Peter's strength of faith, he looked beyond those difficulties and he looked to Jesus, who had the power to save him from the difficulty that he was in. And so it was in in, in verse 32 that having pulled Peter from the water, they came into the ship and the wind ceased. And so we learn that in our lives, as, as we each face difficulties and challenges, as we're tossed about on the sea of life, then we do well to look to the example of Peter, who in faith looked to his Lord and placed his trust in the one who he knew could save him. Well, there's another example of Peter's strength of faith. If we turn to Matthew chapter 26, it was immediately before Jesus was crucified. He'd been arrested, and he was being held in the high priest's palace, and we're told that Peter had somehow managed to get himself into the palace to find out what was happening, and he'd mingled with some of the other bystanders. And it's then that he's questioned about being one of the followers of Jesus. And we know that Peter at this point failed, because instead of admitting to that, and instead of talking about Jesus and how Jesus had helped him in his life, Peter denied ever knowing his Lord. And then it was that the cock crew, And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, that Peter would deny him three times. And that had now happened. But Peter's denial of ever knowing Jesus, well, that was clearly a weakness. But the fact remains 
that once again, he was the only one of the 12 disciples who'd had the faith and the conviction to follow Jesus as far as the high priest's palace. The other 11 had stayed away. You'd have thought that they'd all have been there, wouldn't you? But it was Peter. He was the man. He was the disciple who had that confidence to follow his Lord to what would be the bitter end. Now undoubtedly Peter learnt by his failure to speak up for Jesus. Never again would he deny his Lord in that way. And later when he wrote his epistles that we can read in the New Testament, he gave this advice to his readers. He says, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter had made that mistake. He denied his Lord, but he wouldn't do it again. From now on, he would be ready always to give an answer for the faith which was his. And discipleship is all about learning from our mistakes, isn't it? None of us is perfect in serving God in our lives. We each have to reflect upon our lives, and we have to learn from the mistakes that we've made. And we should have the confidence, each one of us, that God He's willing to overlook our weaknesses and to forgive our sinfulness before him if only we confess our sins and if we try harder to, to follow the commandments which he set out and the way of life that we should be following and we make every effort to correct the error of our ways. Let's move on. Andrew comes next and Andrew was Peter's brother. And in Andrew we see somebody with a totally different character. It seems he was a much quieter and less confident person than, than, than his brother Peter. And that's so often the case in families, isn't it? There's a noisy one and a quiet one. There's a confident one and there's a shy one. Well, we know a lot less about Andrew um, than, than we do Peter. But what we are told suggests that he was a very thoughtful and a caring person. Andrew was also a fisherman and we learned from John's Gospel that he'd actually been a disciple of John the Baptist as well. And on one occasion, shortly after the baptism of, of Jesus, Andrew realised that here was the Messiah. Here was somebody very, very important. Here was the Messiah that they'd been waiting for. And that was such good news that Andrew immediately went to find his brother Simon Peter, which we've just been talking about. And he brought Simon Peter to Jesus. He wanted Peter to hear for himself what Jesus had to say. He wanted his brother Peter to be included and, and not to miss out in any way. So here was Andrew bringing someone to Jesus. And later in the Gospels we read that it was Andrew who told Jesus about a boy who had five loaves and two fish on the occasion when the people needed feeding. And it's in the same chapter when, again, Andrew introduces someone to Jesus. It was some, some visiting Greeks who, who wanted to meet with Jesus. And Andrew was the one who made that move and, and introduced these men to Jesus. And really, that's all we know about Andrew in the Gospels. But again, he provides a lesson for us all. Because perhaps Andrew was not a man of many words. Perhaps he lacked the confidence to explain the teaching of Jesus. But what he was prepared to do was to bring others to Jesus so that Jesus could speak to them. And for those of us who have already found the Lord Jesus in our lives, then that's something which we can all be doing, isn't it? Some of us might lack the confidence to speak to others about our faith, but all of us 
can witness by way of our way of life, the way in which we're living our day-to-day lives. And all of us have opportunities presented to us to extend the the invitation to, to come and hear more. That's something which each and every one of us can do. And for me, Andrew reminds us that we all need to be active in bringing others to share in the hope of the gospel. It's something which we can all do. Andrew and Peter then, they were brothers, although quite different to each other. And amongst the twelve disciples, there were also two other brothers. There was, there was James and there was John. They were both the sons of Zebedee, and they were also fishermen. And we've read about their calling also in Matthew chapter 4. And we might ask, what was their father's reaction? Their father was called Zebedee, and there they were, working as a family, mending their nets, and, and Jesus comes along and he says, follow me. And James and John immediately leave what they're doing, they leave their father to it, and they follow Jesus. Well, we're not told what Zebedee's reaction was, but we can only assume that he realised the significance of the arrival of Jesus and the important work which was to be done, and, and the honour which indeed it was to have two of his sons called to be disciples of the Lord. And Zebedee's wife also appears to have been supportive of the situation. She's referred to by name elsewhere in the Gospels as Salome. And Matthew tells us that she was present at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. And and some have suggested that she was actually a relative of of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So so here was a whole family. The father Zebedee, the mother Salome, and their, their, their two boys, James and John, who were embracing the teaching of Jesus and the hope of the Gospel. So what do we know about these two men particularly? Rather intriguingly, when Jesus called his disciples and and sent them out preaching, we're told in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus surnamed James and John as Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now it's not totally clear why Jesus called them that, why he referred to them in that way. It could have been a a physical characteristic. Maybe they they both had very deep voices or were very loud men. Or perhaps it referred to the way in which they sometimes presented themselves. There's one occasion recorded in Mark when, when John had witnessed a man who was healing people in the name of Jesus. Come with me to Mark. Let's stray into Mark's gospel. And these men, uh, James and John, respond in in an interesting way. So Mark chapter 9 and verse 38. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Read the rest of it in a minute. Now, some translations say that he was not one of us, suggesting that this man that was doing this healing... Um, was in fact a disciple, but that he wasn't one of the selected 12 disciples which Jesus had called to him. The point is that John had confidently spoken to the man and forbidden him from performing the miracles and was now telling Jesus this because presumably he thought that Jesus would be pleased with his action, that he'd taken the right course of action, that he'd said the right thing. But Jesus didn't want John to say that. Verse 39. But Jesus said... Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. 
But the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So clearly John was wrong in his response to the man and, and Jesus had to explain that to him. And there was another occasion, it's back in Matthew this time, Matthew chapter 20, when this time James and John, along with their mother, came to Jesus and they made an interesting request. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. And he said that it was an inappropriate thing for her to have asked because it wasn't his to give. Now, clearly the request was made with the agreement of James and John. Otherwise, I'd certainly have spoken to their mother and, and explained that this wasn't the right thing to ask Jesus for. It seems then that the words of Jesus, when he'd spoken a parable to the, Pharisee, to, to the Pharisees about sitting at the lowest seats and waiting to be invited to a better seat, had somehow been lost on James and John. So they clearly still had a lot to learn. Quite an interesting little account that really. A strange thing to ask, but Jesus draws a lesson from it. Now it's interesting that James and John, along with Peter, who we've already considered in time, came to be what are sometimes called the inner group of disciples. Peter, James and John, those three, they became very close to Jesus and he allowed them opportunities which weren't given to the other nine disciples. There was the occasion when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus, who we've already referred to, but who was a ruler in the synagogue. And, and we're told that having been called to the situation, Jesus suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So he wanted them to see what he was going to do and how he would raise the girl to life. And then there was the occasion of what we call the transfiguration, when Jesus went up into a mountain and he took with him James and Peter and John and they, on that occasion, were privileged to see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus on the mountainside. And it was just before the crucifixion, when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus took those three disciples and he instructed them to watch as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So those men, those three disciples, they, they were all strong characters, weren't they? They all had their own opinions but they were men who Jesus knew were completely loyal to him and who were gradually gaining in their knowledge and their understanding of the gospel message and who would go on to be effective preachers of the gospel. We come now to a group of disciples about who we actually know very little. In some ways it's surprising that the, the gospels don't tell us more about those men who gave up so much and were so supportive of Jesus during his ministry. But then the scriptures never fail to surprise us, do they? Because what we're reading is the word of God. And God has caused to be written down the things which we need to know, the things from which we can benefit from. So in the case of some of the 12 disciples, all we know is that they made a break from their old way of life and that they committed themselves to serving the Lord 
and fully embracing his teaching. And, and Philip is one such example, someone that we know hardly anything at all about. The Gospel writer tells us that it was the day after finding Peter and Andrew and James and John that Jesus was again in the region of Galilee and found Philip and, and said to him, follow me. Jesus clearly had a presence, didn't he? Which caused people to respond to him. He commanded authority, which caused people to listen. And I'm sure that Philip had heard Jesus speaking on previous occasions, but when the call came, once again, he was another man who was ready to make the response which Jesus was looking for and to commit himself to the work to be done. And commitment was the key thing, wasn't it, that Jesus was looking for. And that still applies, because discipleship isn't a casual thing. Discipleship is committing to a way of life which is pleasing before God. It's committing oneself to following the principles which are set out on the Sermon in the Mount, committing to a way of life in which we aim to reflect the character of the Lord Jesus and to put our lives, um, our, our old lives behind us and to commit to living in a way which is pleasing to the Lord. And that's what discipleship was then. It's what was required of the disciples. They had to change their way of life. They had to live according to the principles which Jesus was teaching. And that's what discipleship is all about now. And that's why it's so helpful to look at examples in Scripture who, of people who tried their best to achieve that. And Philip, who we're thinking about now, is just one example who did his best in, in following Jesus. Well, we're told even less about Bartholomew. He's simply listed as being one of the twelve chosen disciples, as are James the son of Alphaeus and, and Lebius, or, or Thaddeus as he's called in the other Gospels. But it shouldn't take away from the role that each one of them played during the ministry of Jesus. They were committed men who'd given up their livelihoods and they'd responded to the calling of Jesus. And what a privilege and an honour that was. That leaves us then with just four more disciples, from each of which we can learn something different. Firstly, there was Matthew, who, in the list of disciples which we read, is referred to as Matthew the Publican. Now, publicans were a group of men who were, were Jewish, but they were employed by the occupying Roman authorities uh, to collect taxes. The term publican actually comes from the Latin ordo publicanorum, which referred to men who worked for the government in various ways. I guess that the modern term that we would use, we would say that that person would be a civil servant. And uh, in fact, in more modern translations, uh, Matthew is actually referred to quite plainly as being a tax collector. Now, working for the Romans would have made Matthew particularly unpopular amongst his fellow Jews, especially as most publicans were known to, to overcharge on taxes for their own benefit. It was a way in which they made themselves a handsome living. So when, Peter, when Jesus called Matthew, we see a man who would have to make very big changes in, in his life. From now on, he'd need to be an honest tax collector, and he'd have to charge the correct rates. 
Or maybe it is that he changed his way of life completely and became a full-time disciple of Jesus. We're simply not told. But in common with many of the other disciples, what we see again is a response in the first instance and a commitment to follow Jesus and to live accordingly. Then we come to Simon. Simon's an interesting one. He's described as Simon, Simon the Canaanite or Simon called Zelotes. Now, it's not totally clear from the Gospel records as to what the term Canaanite means. But it does seem that it's nothing at all to do with um, the land of Canaan, which was the old name for the land of Palestine. It seems instead that it's an Aramaic word meaning zealous. So it could be that Simon the Canaanite was being described as Simon the Zealous, an enthusiastic and, and hard-working disciple. But there is an alternative. It could be that at the time of his calling, Simon was a member of the Zealot party. So Simon the Zealot. And this Zealots were a group of men who were fanatical nationalists, dedicated to the, to the overthrow of the, the occupying Roman power. And this would make Simon a, a hardline politician. And we might wonder what on earth it was that attracted Simon to Jesus. What was it that, that Simon saw in Jesus? Or indeed, what did Jesus see in Simon? You'd think he'd want to keep his distance from, from such a man. I think the answer lies in the promise which Jesus brought about the kingdom of God. Because Jesus taught his disciples about a time when the occupying Roman power would be no more. And when in fact all the kingdoms of the world would and will become God's kingdom on earth. We read these words in the book of Revelation. They weren't words which existed at the time of, of Jesus, but they were written afterwards. And we read that then the seventh angel blew his trumpet... And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. Now, there are similar prophecies back in the Old Testament as well, which Jesus would have shown his disciples to demonstrate that it's God who's actually now ruling in the kingdom of men, and that it's God who sets up world rulers. And in so doing, God is bringing gradually about his will and purpose with the earth. And what Simon would have heard from Jesus was, in actual fact, the promise that of, of what he was looking for. Simon, if indeed he was a zealot, a member of that, that, that political party, he wanted the Romans out. And what um, Jesus was talking about was a time which was a much greater um, well, a time when, when, in fact, Jesus would rule as king, will rule as king, over the world, and, um, well, the Romans will be, will be history. A time when God will be all in all. And that's, I'm sure, what attracted Simon to the message which Jesus brought. But what Simon had to learn was that God has a very different time scale as to how we see things. In the short term, we're limited to our lifetimes, aren't we? But God is working out his plan over hundreds and thousands of years, and God's plan includes the hope of resurrection, 
so that all those who believe and commit their lives to serving God have a hope of a place in his kingdom to be set up on the earth. And just as Jesus, it was just as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the disciple Thomas had also come to believe and have faith and confidence in the coming kingdom of God. But in common with many of us, there came a time when he questioned his faith. The crucifixion of Jesus was a massive challenge for all of the disciples. The man they'd looked up to for three years, the man who'd changed their lives, the man who always had the right words for whatever situation arose, had now been crucified. They were left without a leader. They'd seen it all with their own eyes and the image of Jesus on the cross would stay with them for a long time. The fact is though that they should have known what to expect. Jesus had told them plainly enough but the reality of that event still hit them very hard. But as well as telling them about his crucifixion, Jesus had also spoken about his resurrection recorded in Mark's gospel that he said to them the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and of the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again so they knew that but immediately following the crucifixion they found life difficult and sometimes circumstances are such that we find it difficult to move on from where we are don't we and it was then that when ten of the disciples were together and Jesus appeared to them in an upper room, Thomas was absent. And Thomas was told by the other disciples that Jesus had appeared to them. But he struggled to believe what they were saying. Come with me this time to John. Let's stray outside of Matthew again. To John and chapter 20. And we read these words in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Perhaps we can empathize with, with Thomas. Perhaps we can appreciate how his faith had been challenged and he was struggling now to move on in his life. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was there with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas had the privilege of being able to see his risen Lord. And that helped him to overcome his doubts and to establish his faith. And at times when 
our faith is weak, or at times when we might be searching for faith or looking for the truth of God's word, we can all learn from Thomas. Thomas was unsure and uncertain. He didn't know what to think, but he didn't turn completely away. We've read that the eight days later, after showing that doubt, Thomas was again with the other disciples. Perhaps he was looking for answers. He was trying to work things out in his own mind. Because he was with them, he was blessed in being able to to meet with his risen Lord. And you know, that should be the case for us as well, shouldn't it? If we're just discovering the truth of God's word, we need to share time with those who already have an established faith. And if we're finding that our faith is challenged in some way, then the place to be is with our brothers and sisters who can help us in overcoming our doubts. The evidence of God working out his plan and his purpose, it's all around about us in so many ways, isn't it? But sometimes we have to make the effort to look for it and we have to allow others to help us and to encourage us, as indeed we should all be helping and encouraging each other in our walk towards the kingdom. Well, the last disciple of the twelve is Judas Iscariot. He's always last. He's always listed last. We're told that he betrayed Jesus into the hands of the authorities, and I'm sure that his motivations and his understandings, or his misunderstandings and his background, would make a study all in itself. We don't have time to do that this afternoon. Other than to consider him as a warning to us all that sometimes things are not as they seem. Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. He even said to him at the Last Supper, what you're going to do, do quickly. And as we said at the start, Jesus knows each of us as well. He's able to look on our hearts and our minds to see where our loyalties lie. He knows our motivations and he understands the effort which we're making or not making in trying to serve him. What we've seen then is a group of men with different backgrounds who faced different challenges, who had to get along together and who were being prepared for the task ahead of them of preaching the gospel. And in so many ways, that's no different to our own lives, is it? Disciples of the Lord Jesus in 2014 are from different backgrounds. We're faced with different challenges in life, and we have to learn to get along with each other. Whatever our background, whatever personal challenges we face in life, We have the assurance that God has promised that he will establish a worldwide kingdom and that all those who have served him faithfully in their lives and have have followed his commands will be blessed with a place in the kingdom age. So let's hope and pray that we, along with the disciples, are amongst that number. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, Go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk.